Welcome to the Annotated 80s podcast. I'm Paul Galliardi, uh, one of your hosts. I'm a scholar of American theater and literature, and I'm definitely a child of the 1980s. And my co-host... I am Amy Blair. I am also a scholar of American literature and popular culture, and I am a child of the 70s and teen of the 1980s. <clears throat> so our first episode here, we'll be talking about The Outsiders, but I wanted to say a little bit about what the genesis of this whole podcast was. And so um, we both, I, I, I have come, I have known Amy for about three years. Yeah, four, about three years. I think yeah, three. about three, three years. Um, and I have, I have come to know that like, we both geek out about a lot of different things. And we both have had like an interest in pop culture. And recently we had a conversation. I don't remember how it, how it started. We were talking about um, the film, 1992 film with Tim Robbins called Bob Roberts, uh, which is a really good mockumentary uh, in it. Uh, Bob Robert, or Tim Robbins plays a Republican who is running for Senate in, in Pennsylvania. And it's done in that mockumentary style that you may have seen in like Christopher Guest movies. But we were talking and we had like, we were I'm watching. Of nothing because, you know, there hasn't been any political activity going on. Nothing, nothing's, nothing's been going on at all. No, no, it just, it just <laughs> organically arose somehow <laughs> in the conversation. I think, I think we like, we had talked about Alan Rickman at some point. Alan Rickman is in the film and that might've been the genesis of it. Yeah, anyway, clearly. Okay. Clearly. But, you know, uh, we were, we we were, we were both like, watching it asynchronously and we kept coming back to how would you teach this because there's so many elements of bob roberts that you'd have to explain like 1960s folk music uh and politics of the 1980s um and the rise of entertainment in political uh theater and so we kind of came to this idea wouldn't it be kind of cool to do an annotated version of all the things you might need to know about a film or a TV show from the long 1980s, and Amy's going to talk about that, um, that you didn't know, right? And so kind of like a Norton Critical Edition, right, where you, you get the Norton Critical Edition, it has all the secondary texts and letters that different authors wrote each other, uh, and influences of the author on their novel, and we're going to try to do that in a podcast format. So well, we initially thought we would do a Kotak class, but that is never going to happen. So this, this is the option that we came up with. And now you yeah. don't have to pay tuition to get our knowledge. So. No, no. But if you have tuition and you would like to send it to us. <laughs> we have not yet set up a Patreon. We will see if that makes any sense. It's, it's going to be a Patreon. You're not going to get anything. <laughs> no mugs or anything like that. But, you know, you might get a bonus episode. But... Go. But yeah, like we're going to focus mostly on the 1980s and what Amy has termed the long 1980s. So what are the long 1980s, Amy? Well, the long 1980s, because, you know, things don't actually happen according to decade, right? Or to right. century. And so when literary scholars say, well, I study the 19th century, but it's not like everything started happening in 1800 and nothing that happened in the 1700s had anything to do with that. So what a lot of scholars do is they talk about the long 19th century or the long 20th century where you can get information about things or you talk about things that happened sort of before the clock turns over to the aughts. And then you talk about a little something after. 
So in this case, because we're talking about the long 80s, we'll end up looking at some things that happened. What we'll probably have is, you know, the, our, our central focus, um, things that came out in the 70s, in the late 70s, especially. Um, and we might go up even into um, the early 90s. Um, we want to eventually do Bob Roberts, and that came out in 92. So we're calling that the long 80s. So that didn't fit into the title very well, so we're calling it the annotated 80s, but there's going to be some material for either side of the decade also. Yeah. 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 Cool. I think, I, all right. We, so our, we're going to talk about the outsiders today. Very much of the 80s. Yeah, it's it's in that <laughs> it's not a 70s movie. It is definitely a 1980s movie. Uh, you could probably make an argument it's a 70s movie, but we're not going to do that. I mean, that's, you know. But we actually can talk about that a little bit at some point. So so if you've not seen The Outsiders, uh, I want to give you a quick overview because it's based, the, the, the movie is from 1983, directed by Francis Ford Coppola. Uh, it is set in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It's really about this sort of turf war between um, the people, like the teens on the south side of Tulsa <clears throat> versus the north side. Uh, the kids on the south side are called greasers and they look like, you know, like you think of like Elvis Presley in the 1950s, you know, the slick backed hair, they're wearing, you know, white t-shirts and jeans. Uh, and then the socias, uh, sort of the, the bourgeois upper class, upper middle class rich kids on the other side of the railroad tracks, the short for socials. Uh, the main character is <coughs> named Pony Boy. He is a, the youngest brother uh, of a family who lost their, their uh, parents um, a few years ago, and the oldest brother has taken on like a sort of paternal role. Uh, his best friend is named Johnny. Uh, Johnny is played by Ralph Macchio in the film. Uh, uh, we'll get into like the, all the different actors at various points. Um, but throughout the film, there are all these like incidents between the Soches and the Greasers, um, there is a moment where Ponyboy and Johnny are, you know, kind of hanging out in the middle of the night. They're attacked by some Soches and Johnny uh, knifes uh, one of the Soches. And so the, the, two, the two main characters have to kind of go into hiding for, for a bit of time. Meanwhile, uh, we're getting rapidly to this big throwdown, uh, this rumble between the Soches and the greasers, that's sort of the apex of the film. Uh, and then the film ends. And there are a lot of, you know, there's a lot of violence, uh, a lot of, you know, representation of sort of, you know, <coughs> teen angst and, and violence. And in some ways it's, it's very similar, but in some ways radically different than, than the novel. Right? Um, and so I have not read the novel, but I know someone who has. Uh, so transition. Yes. So the novel um, came first. Um, and the novel came quite a long time before uh, the movie, actually. The novel was published in 1967. And it was written by S.E. Hinton, who at the time of writing was actually 16 years old. So she wrote the novel as a teenager for teenagers. Um, she actually had been frustrated and thought that the literature that was sort of out there that was so sort of directed at teenagers or at least that had teenage characters was basically too anodyne right it was really kind of directed toward making you into a goody two-shoe and well-behaved citizen right 
Um, and she saw around her violence. She saw angst. And she sat down and she said, I just decided to write these characters and uh, show them having all of this conflict. And the way she, there's a whole myth, mythos surrounding her writing of the novel. Um, and actually any version of the novel that you buy now has a whole bunch of stuff that comes before and after, um, which uh, literary scholars call paratext, right? So at the beginning, there's this whole long letter to the reader by S.C. Hinton talking about, I wrote the novel when I was 16 and then I was all a part of, you know, making the movie happen. Um, and then there's all this stuff after talking about, oh, the outsiders had a huge impact on youth culture. And it's very famously kind of thought of as the first YA, first young adult novel. So one of the first novels that was, you know, published for and directly marketed solely to young adults, as opposed to parents who might buy texts for their kids. So that's one of the reasons that it is a significant novel and therefore becomes a significant movie. It's a novel that had a huge fan base for a very long time, not just among young adults, but also among the librarians, right? So think about your child services librarian. Their goal, right, is supposed to be to get kids to read books. So they spend a lot of time um, trying to figure out um, how to, I mean, they're not publishing the books, right, but they receive the books. So how do I get these books into the hands of my patrons, right, my kids? Um, so interestingly enough, um, The Outsiders became super famous. People loved it. Librarians loved it, especially because young boys would read it, right? Um, it has boy characters. It has boy mm -hmm. on the cover. Um, so, and boys famously, you know, supposedly don't read books. This is sort of the same phenomenon we've seen in Harry Potter. Right. right. Harry Potter came right. out and everybody goes, oh, yay, finally, it's something that boys will read. Right. And so librarians loved it. There's a very famous story that a librarian thought to herself. I really should have written down her name because she is so very famous and she's thanked. Right. Mm -hmm. She's thanked in the credits of the film. I'm not going to be able to find it now because I'm trying to look for it. That's kind of the line I always use in class. It'll be on the course website later. So Yes, yeah. there yeah. you go. We'll, we'll write our names um, later. Uh, okay, I give up. Um, but anyway, she thought, I want this to be a novel. And I can't even remember why she thought of Coppola. Do you remember why she thought of Coppola? I don't know. I didn't, I didn't come across that in my research as to why she thought of... Oh. I probably have it somewhere else. But Francis. anyway, apparently she thought of Francis Ford Coppola and when she called his agents, they apparently very fortunately um, gave her his New York address instead of his Yes. Address. Because the New York address actually got directly to him. And so she writes in this letter and says, there's this great book. It's got all these boys in it. Kids love it. You should make this into a movie. And he actually, A, got the letter um, mm -hmm. He got the book and read it and then decided, um, this sounds like a lot of fun. I should do this and get this whole troop of boys together and it'll be like being a camp counselor. <laughs> <laughs> the, the librarian's name, by the way. Oh, thank and I, uh, Joe Ellen uh, Miskakin. Hmm. It's a mouthful. But she, yeah. like solely responsible um, for putting this in Coppola's hands and encouraging him and sort of basically saying, 
guess what? You've got this huge ready-made market because kids love it. They love mm -hmm. this book. And he said, that sounds great to me. So um, that's, that's what's really important about the novel itself. We'll talk some about the relationship between what happens in the novel and what doesn't. You can actually Google it. There are like all these, you know, tons of people have created websites. What are the differences between the mm -hmm. novel and the movie? Um, so we won't talk about that so much, but one of the things that's really important in terms of the mythos of the film is, and, and what we'll end up talking about a lot with the long 80s is this question of who is culture for, right? And right. a fragmentation that we see going on in the 80s. Um, and I'm, I'm maybe getting ahead of ourselves a little bit here, but. We can get ahead of ourselves, it's fine. It's not, okay. it's not as though we like, we have like a script or anything, or we haven't talked about what we're gonna talk about. Like this is, we're right. just free forming it, you know? Right. Well, free, why don't yeah. you do, why don't you go with um, a little bit about Coppola now, Paul, since I sort of brought that up. And, oh, that's, yeah. So Coppola is, if you, if you think of 1970s directors, like Francis Ford Coppola is probably the guy uh, he won all these Academy Awards for The Godfather and The Godfather Part Two. He he had this amazing like, Apocalypse Now. <clears throat> very very he, manly films with large numbers of guys in them. Yes, big big manly men. Um, uh, uh, and then you have the conversation, which doesn't quite fit into that, but still pretty good. Um, but he's part of this this generation of filmmakers that sort of comes in the age of the 60s, late 60s, 70s, um, called kind of generally called New Hollywood. And Hollywood, year, years before this, uh, was very much in a studio system, right? So there is a call like the Hollywood sort of look of films um, uh, that. You know, everything was produced in studios. Uh, they were really vehicles for various actors. Um, at the worst, a lot of people have said, like kind of the golden age of Hollywood, the Hollywood, Hollywood uh, cinematic era, uh, is it, all the films are basically recognizable with a few, few exceptions. You have some genre pictures, et cetera. And like film historians have pushed against that. But this generation of filmmakers like Marty, Marty Scorsese and, Cop and Francis Ford Coppola and George Lucas and Steven Spielberg and Woody Allen, right? Mm -hmm. um, they kind of hit the sweet, the sweet moment where you have film, to kind of backtrack a little bit further, one of the problems of film in the 60s was you had a major, comp major competition with television, mm -hmm. right? And so film profits start to really kind of tank uh, in the 19, late 50s, the 1960s. Because well, everybody's having, you know, they're watching television and if they're gonna see something on television, they have to be there at the moment of broadcast, right? Right. There's no, there's no recording, home recording of anything, right? No. Or the VCR, everything else. So, so if you wanna watch the Beatles and Ed Sullivan, you have to like turn on your station at like seven o'clock or eight o'clock on Sunday night. Otherwise you're not gonna see it. Whereas film, right, you could go to the one o'clock show or the three o'clock show or what have you. Mm -hmm. um, if you have infinite leisure, yes. Yes, well, of course. Like, if we're, yeah, yeah, go Marxist on me, that's fine. Um, It'll happen several times. No, yeah, <laughs> same here, same here. <laughs> Basically at some point in this, in this podcast, we'll just be yelling overthrow the, the bourgeoisie yeah, and yeah. yeah. That'll be next, that'll be in like five minutes. Um, but the, uh, so yeah, like, so like Hollywood starts to like, they used to have this self-censorship system called the Hayes Code, 
um, which is what you could and you couldn't do in films. Um, that kind of like starts to dissipate in the 60s and you have this generation of filmmakers who've been watching European films, the French New Wave and Italian new neorealism. And they start to make these films that are um, aesthetically different. You know, they're, they, instead of like shooting in studios, they actually go to um, <clears throat> the, like live, uh, they go outside. <laughs> they go to, you know, they're not gonna like, they're not gonna recreate Tulsa, Oklahoma in, you know, soundstage right, at Paramount. They're going to go to Tulsa. Uh, you have a generation of actors that have been influenced by people like Paul Newman and um, uh, sort of like the new school um, of, of acting, you know, like sort of like you really get into character, you become like, um, um, why can't I think of that term? Uh, method acting? Method acting, thank you. Um, so, uh, and, and these artists are, are, these directors are using like these really weird, you know, sort of aesthetic, you know, directing styles. Uh, and you and they become really successful in the seventies, right? You have things like The Godfather. You have um, you know Scorsese's movies. Then you have Star Wars and Jaws, which we'll kind of talk about a little bit later at some point. Um, but Coppola, like, is like he's like the guy. And in the early eighties, he he has a film um, called One from the Heart, which is like this experimental musical. It is a bomb it is a <laughs> bomb of bombs uh, i think it if i remember correctly it grossed like i think seven dollars it yeah. was something <laughs> something astronomical like that there was somebody in des moines iowa who went one day and that was and that was it but coppola had been for years kind of self-financed he has like his own independent studio quasi independent studio and he's bankrupt uh, and so he has to start taking on these projects in the eighties that are going to be a little more financially viable to him. Yeah. So if a librarian emails him and says a whole bunch of kids are going to go to this movie, he's like, Ooh, mm -hmm. ka-ching. 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 And then he starts hiring all these actors, like Amy said, that are like these up and coming hot properties and they all go to camp and they go film in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, there's stories, there's a really great oral history <laughs> of the outsiders. And it sounds like very traumatizing. It sounds like what I experienced, <laughs> like going to hockey camp, right, as a teenager, right, right where there's, there's, there's bullying on, but it's not, you know, boys being boys kind of thing. Yes, yes. Diane Lane as the only, like really the only female actor in the film. Mm -hmm. Um, it's actually kind of funny if, when you read the interviews, she sort of awkwardly says, well, I guess this is what it's like to have brothers. Um, but she clearly was traumatized. They poured honey on her toilet seat and yeah. did all these terrible things. And, um, you know, but, and, and they short sheeted everybody's beds. And I mean, and apparently they did it mostly to see Thomas Howell, who mm -hmm. as the main character as Ponyboy is basically on camera all the time. So he worked every single day Whereas, you know, Patrick Swayze and Tom Cruise and all them are just hanging out at their hotel and figuring out, apparently mostly Swayze, right? He was right. the ringleader of all this. And yeah. 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 So uh, and, they played tricks on each other. Yeah. And Coppola kind of encouraged that because he wanted, totally. uh, because he's also in this, like, like, he's influenced partly by method acting, right? That he wants his actors to kind of become the character. And so he wants to cultivate this sort of, like you said, camp counselor 
kind of ethos, right? And that's the uh, way they are in the film, right? They're all these yeah. boys who are living together. They have no parental supervision, right? The parents that are there are abusive or absent or dead, right? Or Tom Waits um, <laughs> is kind of a parental figure. He actually has a tiny little cameo where this is apparently where Matt Dillon's character is living is sort of a honky tonk. And he basically just opens the door and sort of drunkenly lets them in. It's the kind of role where I would say to myself, you know what? I could have done that. I could have like <laughs> opened the door and just like, hey, he's not here. And like, just, you know, he's busy. It's a very yeah. bad time. That's a terrible Tom Waits impression. It's okay. It, it's, you know, he didn't really show a lot of range. I mean, honestly, <laughs> no. um, and you know, as long as we're talking about method, like Coppola just said, you know, you already lived this life, so you, you're good. Just, just go with it. It's a Tuesday, yeah. you know. Just <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Ralph Macchio's story. So, um, my entry into the film as a person watching it at the time when it came out was, frankly, Ralph Macchio. And um, he tells the story of uh, Coppola basically, so he plays probably the most downtrodden character in Johnny. Um, Johnny is abused at home, although that's kind of soft peddled in the film. It's much more explicit in the novel. In the film, you just kind of hear his parents fighting. Although he does mention, I guess at one point, he says something like, when my dad hits me, right? Um, uh, yes. I think he says it one time. I think so, yeah. Um, at, he is already, he is pre-injured um, at the beginning of the film. He already has this giant gash on his cheek and they mention, oh, that happened, you know, a Soch hit him. It turns out that it actually is, it's a Soch who wears rings, who actually will get to this, but is Bob, uh, who is the Soch who Johnny ends up stabbing with his switchblade, um, who is played by Leif Garrett, um, a, a name that you'll all remember. But anyway, so John is a very, very. I can just, um, I can hear people googling it right away. Oh like, uh, yeah. yeah. Oh, and, and then they go him because at first I was like, I'm waiting for Lee Garrett to show up, and then this guy shows up who kind of looks like him, but he's got short hair, and Lee Garrett mm -hmm. had like long, luscious locks, right, from the '70s. Right. But that we'll talk a little bit about him later. I've sort of spoiled it, but I'm back to Ralph Macchio. Macchio, Coppola gives him five dollars and says, live for a day on this money, right? Which I'm thinking that he should have given him like $15 and told him to live for a week, but whatever. He says, live for a day. Um, Machio apparently goes out and like sleeps on benches to, to feel the character. Um, he also famously said that he spent a lot of time in character, um, so he didn't pay a whole lot of attention to what was going on in the hotel. But, mm -hmm. um, but you know, this is sort of getting to the whole, um, Coppola wants them to become this boy gang, right? Um, and to live together and kind of create their own internal rules, right? That's one of the things that they're doing in the film too, is the gang has the set of, you know, what's a fair fight and what's not. And so, you know, among the actors, you kind of reduplicate that. Yeah. That. Yeah. And, and method acting, just a brief aside, like it, it, like it, it, like I said, like it gains popularity in, in, the 50s right and it becomes like this dominant you know like De Niro Bobby De Niro right yep. I'm gonna gain 70 pounds right at various points in Raging Bull I'm going to like live in <clears throat> northwest Pennsylvania mm -hmm. in the coal mines for the deer hunter right mm -hmm. um giving giving a teen five dollars and saying go live you know on your own that yeah. that's not cool uh, it's 
it's not, but it, but it's so ingrained in like this this acting culture of of, of the time. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Tom Cruise, by the way, will uh, go method by getting one of his teeth pulled, one of his front teeth pulled to reproduce the fact that he gets one of them knocked out in the moment. So, but of course he's Tom Cruise. He gets it fixed. You never know. The golden smile stays. So. Anyway. Now Tom Cruise. Jeez. Oh uh, yeah. We have some thoughts about Tom Cruise in this. Mm-hmm. Let's we'll say, we, I think we should, I think we, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, well, okay. We can say him now. Well, he, I, I am shocked that he had a career after this, to be completely honest, uh, because it is, he is, he is overacting in this film. He, his grimaces are just painful. Like, everything else is fine, but his like mad rumble face is just dreadful. And it, fortunately he gets that worked out like in his later film. Yeah. Um, but this one, it, it, it is like he's doing slips. I mean, you know, it's, it's absurd to me. Did, I just, I laughed every time he came on the screen because it's so ridiculous. I think we had a conversation that you said, like, if you were looking at all his actors, right, mm-hmm. in, in this film, and you'd said, one, we're not going to remember ever again. And yeah. I think you said, you would, you would say it's Tom Cruise. Yeah. And just based on this, like, he's, he's only in the film for maybe seven minutes. Like, no. it's, and his character isn't even a character in the novel. Um, that I recall at all. Like, uh, Estevez's character, um, it's Emilio Estevez, right? He, mm-hmm. His character, Tubit, um, is significant in the book. Um, but, yeah, you, I don't even remember, I don't even remember Tom Cruise's name. I mean, that's how minor he is. He's just sort of there to be ridiculous and do jumping and things. Yeah, and Coppola's like, go for it. Like, you know, he right. sent him like five months of like acrobatics class to get, you know, really understand the role of the backflips. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, well, so I'm going to shift gears maybe a little bit, which is mm-hmm. maybe awkward because, and this is another thing that we're going to do on this podcast is, you know, we can't do everything, obviously, but we're, we're going to like pick and choose, right? We're going to cherry pick things and then we'll mention other things uh, that you could also go out and do uh, graduate for the graduate course. You can do other reading. Um, but uh, one of the things that, we were also noticing just right at the beginning of the film is that, um, and Paul kind of alluded to this earlier, is that, you know, you start looking at this thing and you think to yourself, okay, I know, or maybe you don't, but now you do know that uh, Essie Hinton wrote her book in 67. And actually knowing that, and then looking at the movie, and it's supposed to be contemporary, right? It's supposed to be set in 67. But you look at the movie, you're like, is this a 60s movie? Like, is this really set in the 60s? Right, this is weird. They really look like, they look like they came straight out of West Side Story, right? Um, the two gangs. Um, their haircuts, their clothes, um, their cars. And so the cars are kind of where Paul and I had a really long conversation about, you know, when, when do fins on cars go away, right? Um, and they kind of end up going away, as it turns out, um, although now we're going to get all the car people who, li- I don't know how many car people are going to listen, but uh, the car, the, the car thing with fins, apparently, fins are very, very popular in the late 50s and early 60s, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, in theory, by 67, you're, you don't have a lot of cars with fins. Although then Paul made the very good point. This is time for you to make your very good point, Paul. So one thing that I always found, I always find bothersome when you have a historical movie is and this is why no one comes to my birthday parties is that (laughs) that 
I, 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 you're watching a film set in the 1950s and every car that you see is like brand new, 1955, 1956, right? Uh, or even the 80s film, like everything that you see. Like an 80s film set now, right? You have period specific cars, but that's not, if you drive anywhere in this beautiful country of ours, and you'll find like, you're not gonna find 2020 cars just on the roads. You're going to see um, <clears throat> cars 20 years old, right? My first car was 20 years old <laughs> when, when I got it. So I think, I, I, I think like the, the cars are kind of interesting in this film that you do have period specific uh, cars to the, to the era, but they're not quite totally period specific. Like no one's driving there. Some of the socias have like really souped up. Mm. Um, well, which is appropriate, right? There's right. kids who have right. lots of money and their parents buy them new cars. Right? Mm -hmm. But there's a scene very early in the film that <clears throat> uh, two bit has a, I think it's, I, I think it's like a 42 Packard or something like that. Like this very 1940s car. Um, and you would say, but this is the 1960s. That kind of makes sense. Like if you're from the wrong side of the tracks, so or you're from uh, the working class, if you want to use that term, um, you're not going to get a brand new car. You're going to get something that you find, you know, a used car a lot. And they have to like push the car in order for him to get it into, into gear. Yep. Um, yep. So I think, but I think kind of that point, right, is it, it, like aesthetically, like you'd say it's a 1950s film, but it, right but it's not and i think it's it's really interesting to think about place as it relates to to time because we were also talking about and this is kind of, i think kind of a transition right that you know like we think like when we think of old timey old timey when you think of historical films right you tend to think of like certain places and you think of a 1968 film about the 60s is going to be set in san francisco and everyone's Absolutely. going to be a hippie a hippie or mm -hmm. yep. um what's the opposite of hippies uh, but no, like, it, like people in Tulsa are not going to be on the cutting edge of 1960s culture, right. and we're not dissing Tulsa, no. you know. But but it's not like an epicenter of culture, especially in that time period. So right. um, it kind of makes sense. Like it's a little a little bit backward, right? Yeah, in, and costumes too, right? It lags yeah. so. You know, I mean, one thing that's really interesting about this film is one of our colleagues mentioned when she saw some of the stills from it, she's like, oh my God, look at all the denim, right? Um, in the book, the guys are actually wearing leather, but in the movie, they're wearing denim, which to me feels a little bit more, you know, real because these guys aren't going to be able to necessarily afford leather jackets. You, mm -hmm. It's also a difference in sort of a, um, okay, so one of the things I do is I work on reception study, right? So I think about like how people think about the things they read and see and people bring expectations, right? So we all kind of have these sort of cultural codes, like, like Paul was saying, the 60s is San Francisco and flowers, right? Um, and the 50s is leather jackets and switchblades, right? Which it kind of is, but it also mostly is because of West Side Story, right? And right. then we sort of have these false memories that like, it also is that because of Rebel Without a Cause. Actually, mm -hmm. Rebel Without a Cause, they're not wearing leather jackets. Right, they're actually wearing right. Jackets, right? Um, uh, the very fit, James Dean's big jacket, you know, the, the super jacket is the red jacket, right? That he's got on the cover and he wears it all night, because um, that's just a big long one night, you know, uh, uh, epic there. Um, and Rebel Without a Cause is like 
the gang movie of the 50s that everybody kind of thinks of. And even if you haven't seen it, like at a certain point, it, it's, it's in the soup that we all swim in culturally, right? Right. So that's our code, right? Um, or, you know, you might be West Side Story, right? Um, same thing, very similar look, right? Um, Rebel Without a Cause comes out in 1955. Um, West Side Story is on Broadway in 1957. Um, it's a film made into a film in 1961. Um, you looked askance when I said 57. No, I was I was trying to I was trying to see if I could remember what year, and I'm like I can't remember what year. Oh well, I looked it up yeah. and I had to write it down because All I right. don't remember years. Ever. No, <laughs> so no, I'm no. Gonna, I, I've got a cheat sheet here with the years. But like those are those are actually like if you think of like what does a gang look like, right? What does a rumble look like? Th those are some of the cultural texts you think of. And um, then there are all these like there are all these movies in the fifties like these mm -hmm. kind of teen you know renegade rebel yep. gang yep. movies. <clears throat> um, I wrote down some of my favorites. I had Young Savages in eighteen sixty, yep. Blackboard Jungle, um, One Way Ticket to Hell is probably my favorite. Um, uh, high School Confidential, I think it's 60, 60, no, I think it's 58. They're all kind of the same, like these genre pictures that are all kind of mimicking one another. And right. at a certain point, like everyone's wearing like the rolled up jeans and yep. you know, the greasers and switchblades. And mm -hmm. they all kind of, they're all the same movie in essence. But, it's kind of like, right. but the idea I think we can come back to in other episodes is like when you see a film like for me growing up like the godfather i did not see until i was really older mm -hmm. but i knew it because like right. it's in it's in the soup right? Right. that you un, you recognize it or my daughter a few years ago finally watched star wars for the first time and but she knew it right i mean like like you can't not know star wars in some mm -hmm. in some ways but um, but, but yeah, like it enters that that consciousness, and so that's we right. recognize it. Like that's the fifties, or that's the sixties, right. based right. on these tropes, right? Right, and that's you know that's another thing that we're going to keep coming up, you know, coming to right um, in terms of film is how tropes get reproduced, right? Um, you see, uh, and and then for some people, like now for you, having listened to our podcast, you'll be able to say, oh look that's a quote right of some other film or some other text and actually the outsiders is, is a tech is a movie that kind of um that quotes things a lot like the book quotes things so the source material quotes things um and then coppola um i mean he loves to quote things right like that's how everybody knows he's an auteur right <laughs> exactly um so <laughs> so there's a, there's a lot of fun there um and it, it was kind of a challenge for us too to sort of pare things down and come up with stuff. Um, one of mine that I'm, I'm sort of noticing that maybe I, I you know, not, not enough time, but this is, this is like my pet project because I was thinking about what are the things that mean gangs um, mm -hmm. that are in this movie. Um, and one of the things that means gangs is the switchblade knife. <laughs> so, all right, so this is a thing that I do. I go down historical rabbit holes and, um, as, as I do too. And, and I was like, you were telling me about this and I was like, yeah, this is pretty, pretty yeah, cool. The switchblade. Yeah. And I'm thinking to myself, what is the history of the switchblade? Like when, when does that become a thing? Um, and, uh, I, I did some digging, um, and interestingly enough, uh, switchblades basically become a thing because um, they were Italian uh, and they were brought back to the U.S. by soldiers returning from World War II. And, and you know, I'm not going to say we Italians do everything. 
you know. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah. all the violence and, and yeah. pain comes from the Italian. But the, the soldiers who were in Italy in World War II, you know, thought bees are pretty cool. I mean, they are, they're pretty cool. Um, they're very decorative, or, you know, were, if you look at like really old pictures mm -hmm. of really old switchblades from the 40s. Um, but uh, they bring them back and they're pretty, they're little, um, they actually become kind of hip. Um, and then of course, you know, as always happens, played rap, right? Everything, um, they become giant social problems, right? Right. Um, we see problems with teenagers. Um, it's because of all those darn switchblades. Um, so um, one of the funny things I found was, I, I do a lot of work with old women's magazines. Um, that's kind of my stock and trade. Um, there was this very influential article published in 1950 uh, in Women's Home Companion, which was basically like the poor stepchild, the ladies' home journal, um, and good housekeeping, um, which we, you know, it lost. We don't have it anymore. But it's an article called The Toy That Kills, right? Sweet. And it's got all this great, you know, it's, it is so upset. Um, the, the call out lines are like, a boy's ordinary pocket knife isn't too dangerous, but a switchblade knife ever seen one? Do you know how many youngsters carry them and what police officials think about this wicked new plaything? Right? Um, and the article has this imprimatur from the president of the International Association of Chiefs of Police. It's like, yes, this really is a problem. Thank you for writing this article about switchblades and how horrible they are. Um, so there's already kind of an anti-switchblade kind of crusade going on starting in 1950. Uh, probably we can post a link somewhere to this article because a, a very nice person has put it up on Imgur. It's, um, Ooh. Can't, yeah, I know. So I can find that. Um, but it's really quite fabulous. Um, but then by the time Rebel Without, I mean, what happens in the movies come out and they glorify switchblades. So everybody wants one. Um, and so attempts to ban the switchblade knife start in earnest in Congress in 1957. Um, so you'll remember 1955 is Rebel Without a Cause, uh, 1957 is West Side Story on Broadway, right? Um, your favorite ticket to hell, one way ticket to hell is 55, Blackboard Jungle is 55. <laughs> so there's like this, there's this, you know, uh, uh, critical mass of gang movies that feature switchblades, which was the weapon that Johnny in The Outsiders, because this is a podcast about The Outsiders, um, he uses a switchblade knife, um, which gets a lot of nice up close screen time, right? It's, it's you know, you see the switchblade really close, he's pulling it out of his pocket, you know, he's scared Pony Boy's gonna get drowned. Um, and then- Which is, which is actually a trope in all these other movies. Like you need like a, you need a, a close shot of the switchblade coming out. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, sorry. No, no, that's great. That's great, right. Because it's little and it's quick. Um, and so they start trying to, be, just to be really fast about it, people start trying to ban the switchblade in 57. Um, first time doesn't work, um, but in 58, they finally do it, right? Um, the, the congressional record is a lot of people talking about how the knives specifically create juvenile delinquency, right? We're not gonna have juvenile de delinquency until we've got switchblades and then ah, uh, part of the problem is, right, this is a- So, so their argument is switchblades don't kill, wait, people no. don't kill, <laughs> wait, so people don't <laughs> kill, it's switchblades that do the killing. So, okay, all right. 
different. Something like that. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Different. It's a little different, isn't it? Mm. Um, so mm -hmm. the band passes, actually, it turns out that doesn't really do very much because, as I said, it's a national ban. We all know that regulation happens in states, and the only thing that um, the national ban can do is keep you from carrying your switchblades across state lines to sell them uh, because of the Commerce Clause. Um, all the lawyers in the audience will go ding, 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 ding. Um, but basically, <laughs> the switchblade becomes code for the 50s teenage gang, right? Um, it is um, completely wrapped up in that and juvenile delinquency. And, you know, a lot of the things that are happening in the film is that all, these, all the boys are kind of saying, we're not bad boys, we're just greasers, right? It's not that we're bad, um, but they are because they have switchblades. So, like, the moral of the story so far is play with knives, kids. I think that's, <laughs> that's really... Because then you'll be cool and not yeah. lay yeah. eyes to wear madras all the time. Yeah. Times. You don't need your, your iPads or whatever you kids are doing. I don't know. No. Much cooler. Yeah. Um, so one thing that a big... And we're going to, like, kind of skip over this a little bit. Um, we can... <laughs> We'll probably come back to Gone with the Wind at other points, but there's a, if you've watched the film, there are a lot of references to Gone with the Wind, the Margaret Mitchell not novel from <laughs> 19... <laughs> you didn't, you, no one who's listening can see, but Paul did, I did the air quotes. I did the air quotes. He did the air quotes. It is a novel, in fact. All right. It's fine. Um... <laughs> Somebody's still angry that people made him read that on his prelim reading list, but you know, that's fine. No, it's actually, like, it, it, it's a very important novel. It, like the film version in 1939, huge event. Um, there are a lot of, there are a lot of references to the characters reading Gone with the Wind. The boys have a fascination with <clears throat> soldiers dying. Uh, there's a very famous scene uh, where Ponyboy and Johnny are talking about Robert Frost and it's literally a shot from uh, Scarlett O'Hara in front of Tara, you know, I'll never be hungry again. But I think, I think like, it's like kind of like moving forward to, to sort of the parallel because melodrama is what Gone with the Wind is and it's also uh, what The Outsiders is. And melodrama is, I would say, the most dominant form of, most dominant genre in American culture, right? It's, it's in almost everything that we watch and a lot of the movies we'll be talking about kind of fall into that, like you're led as an, a viewer to align with a certain character. Yep. Um, <clears throat> have a long tradition of sentimental novel, right? Sure. Gone with the Wind, you've got Uncle Tom's Cabin, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Make sure you cry while you read this and then you might become an abolitionist. Right, right. Um, a lot of like traditional melodrama was women-centered, you know, on the issues of the domestic space, uh, especially in theater. Um, and there's a kind of like overlap here, right? Because like this story, this film is a really interesting look at like maleness and identity. Um, and you know, like <clears throat> the family structure that we see is Ponyboy and Soda Pop, his middle brother. Yep, these are real names. And uh, 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 Patrick Soze's character, Derry. Right, so there's like this kind of functioning family with male, more male characters and more female characters mm -hmm. in all these, like in, in the, the greasers, you know, sort of community. But one group that's not really there uh, are women. 
And you know, we have one woman woman character, Diane Lane. Um, Cherry. Oh, what's Cherry. I, I don't remember Cherry's last name. She's Cherry because her hair is red and because she's a virgin, probably. But anyway. Ah, well, that, that was kind of implied, right? Yes. Um, you know. Uh, but so Cherry, like, do you want to talk more about uh, Diane Lane's I, character yeah. here? I mean, she exists basically. She's Helen of Troy right um her oh. character oh you like that huh yeah that was good that was oh, good thank, yeah thank you yeah. Yeah. uh she uh she appears early on in a scene in a drive-in theater mm -hmm. um she is she and her friend uh are escaping a car where boys have flasks and are drinking alcohol and presumably are also getting a little handsy right and they run away from the car and they go sit in the bleachers where um, Ponyboy and Johnny and Dallas, who is uh, Matt Dillon's character, um, and eventually Emilio Estevez's two-bit um, are there. And Dally um, starts acting fresh with Cherry and she rejects him. Um, but then Ponyboy and Johnny um, are telling Derry, hey, leave her alone. And she and her friends say, you know what, we'll sit, why don't you guys come up here and sit with us because you're sweet, right? You would never hurt us. And then they ask them how old they are and they are 14 and 16. So they are clearly not sexual threats. Um, they've been nice. They look much younger. They, they're not built the way the other guys are, right? I mean, we do have shirtless Swayze getting ready for the rumble. So we know that these guys do a lot of working out. Um, but um, so Cherry and, and the sort of saving of Cherry by the greasers is what makes um, Bob and his buddy, the two main socias, initially confront the greasers. Um, and then presumably after they continue to get drunk, that's why they follow Ponyboy and Johnny um, to the fateful playground where um, the near drowning of Ponyboy and the stabbing of Bob happen. Right. So mm -hmm. Cherry shows up one more time to sort of be a go between between the socias and the greasers before the rumble. Um, but that's really it. Right. She's not there. Yeah. there. You know, she says at one point she could fall in love with Dallas. Right. Which is random because you're like, what? He was a sleazeball. Right. He's a bad guy. Right. Um, but she apparently liked it. Um, Sometimes Tony Boy is kind of interested in Cherry. She's like, he's like, oh, she's pretty great, but you know. And he says this repeatedly to Johnny when they are in their escape in the old church, right? After the stabbing, they escape late at night. The two boys escape to the church um, to live life on the lamb, right? Until things kind of cool down, which is where they read Gone with the Wind. Pony Boy <laughs> reads that out loud to Johnny. Um, but you know, Cherry doesn't go with them. And the only reason it's important that Cherry doesn't go with them is because if you look at Rebel Without a Cause, right, um, James Dean takes Natalie Wood with him to the old house, and the two of them are there with Salmoneo's character, who I can't remember. And they basically become a little a little nuclear family, right? Right, it's right. mom and dad and the baby. And they, and they all, like, they enact this. They play act this at great length. Um, Another movie with characters behaving badly, killing people, and going off and blam was Terrence Malick's 1970 Badlands. No, 1970. Yeah, 1970. And in Badlands, they're also very famously Sissy Spacek's character and Martin Sheen, 
Emilio Estevez's dad, right? Their characters go and create a treehouse for themselves. Right. Um, and you have this whole like moment, this moment of sort of domestic bliss, right? They've, they've made an alternate world for domesticity. Um, both of those are male, female pairs, right? Right. Heterosexual pairs. Mm -hmm. um, in The Outsiders, right, we dispense with the heterosexual pair. We have a, what we call a homosocial pair, right? Um, it's the two boys going and making a domestic space together. Um, and it has cues to these other films, right? Because remember, Coppola is, is no tour, so he knows these things. There is not yes. film. He's, yes. He's going to love this, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I think you could make a claim that, you know, he knew what he was doing, right, when he does this. And this is one of these tropes that comes up, but he, it's re, and I mean, it is in the S.E. Hinton material, but in the S.E. Hinton material, um, one could also argue S.E. Hinton knows a little bit about this. Um, because she was a high school student when she wrote the, the book that turned into the movie. Um, and she would have read Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer, right? And Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer have, both of them have scenes, right, that are very famous where um, the boys do something, go off on the lamb with another friend or another partner. Um, and uh, there's a very famous scholar named Leslie Fiedler writes uh, an essay called um, Come Back to the Raft, again, Huck Honey, um, which he also then puts in the 1960 book, Love and Death in the American Novel, where he basically says that a dominant archetype in American literature is the homoerotic love affair between two men who light out for the territory in order to escape civilization's responsibilities and constriction. And it's women, right? Right. So does Essie Hinton, has she read Fiedler? No, she has not. But her teachers may have read him because it, this book had a huge impact um, after it was published in 1960. All of her high school teachers would have had to go to college, right, to get their teaching degrees at that point. Um, they might not have read it, but their professors almost certainly read it, right? This was basically the doctrine of literary study um, mm -hmm. in the 60s, right? Fiedler was right. the guy. Um, so all of this stuff, once again, we've got that cultural soup situation, right? It's filtering down. And when S.E. Hinton thinks guys going on the lamb, right? And I can pop up on uh, the, the Instagram um, some parallel quotations where if I'm reading this and I'm looking at, you know, I know Tom uh, Sawyer really well and Huck Finn and I'm reading it, I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> it's Tom Sawyer. <laughs> when yeah. I read this in S.E. Hinton. Um, so I'll show you some of these parallel um, things. I was going to read it out loud, but I think we're running short on time, so yeah. I won't. Yeah, yeah. But, but that's, that's like first of all, the Helen of Troy, like that, it still stuck on that. But also, like yeah, like it's it's, it's very much a Tom Sawyer Huck Finn yep. kind of dynamic. Where they're well, and in the in the Iliad, Helen of Troy doesn't matter either, right? No, she doesn't. She doesn't, and she's like she's basically the. Uh, the impetus for violence. Right. Right. And that's like her only real reason that she's in the Iliad, right? Is, you know, she's the object, right? And, and like, like the characters treat her as um, basically an object, right? Right. Um, the recent yeah. recasting of, of, of the Iliad, um, Achilles is rewriting the Iliad that really it's all about the love story between Achilles and Patroclus. But, you know, it's very, very clear that Helen doesn't matter at all. 
Um, so I think we, we've mentioned this quite a bit, uh, but this is if, if even if you've never seen The Outsiders, if you look at the cast, right, this is like an all-star cast. It's like a, all yeah, they, Tiger Beat cover gods. Yeah, wow. yeah. It's like the 04 Lakers of you know. <laughs> um, eh, I'll, I'll think about that parallel there a little bit, but. Uh, if you're a business person, the PayPal, right? Apparently PayPal, all the people who were initially in PayPal, like went off to become their own sort of, I, really? don't, I don't, yeah, I don't know business, but apparently that is a analogy that will mean a lot to people who know things about business. Huh. All right. Okay. So any of our CEOs on the pod will, uh... <laughs> by the way, CEOs, if you want that tuition, we want that tuition <laughs> money. <laughs> <laughs> we, we know a college of arts and sciences you can fund too. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, I have a, an unnecessary research trip to <laughs> Italy. Sure, that works. Yeah, yes. that's fine. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I want to spend like something we're going to come back to quite a bit on the podcast is the idea of what's called the star image. And this is like we, we were kind of sprinkling in academic stuff here uh, that makes sense because who we are. But the star image is this term from film studies that comes from Richard Dyer. Um, and in essence, what it is, <clears throat> I'm gonna simplify it as best I can, but there's this, and it goes for reception studies too. Like you have, people go to a movie that, and they're seeing a star on, on, on screen. But the star that they're seeing is not the real person. It's this, this through the celluloid of the film, like what we're, who we're seeing, it's, this sort of like shadow of the person, right? And it's also the promotional materials we know about the person. It's their interviews right. that we see on, right. you know. Uh, so I understand you have a new film project coming out. Tell me about yes. that. But uh, it's the team beat, like the idea of it being sex symbols. Uh, it's their politics. It's what we know about their personal lives, right? We, right. we when we were talking about this. Before we were, I remember we were making Tom Cruise jokes because yeah. it's Tom Cruise, right? Because we all know who Tom Cruise is. Yes, exactly. yeah, and ex no, exactly like the Scientology and weird relationships, and, and you know, you you brought up the parallel to the jumping on Oprah's couch. I mean, yeah, I did, I did, like a twenty-year-old. He was joke. training for it while he was in The Outsiders, and then ah, oh, like, see, that makes sense. Yeah. He didn't do a backflip, which I was no, disappointed. Very but. sad. Yeah. Um, but I think like this at this point, like thinking about like, so like I think for us in 2020, right, to understand part of what made the outsiders the outsiders was like understanding like how these actors are being presented to audiences. Right? Right. Um, and also I would say kind of post whatever that this, like I'm approaching this from 2020. And so we also like how Star Image works too is everything that we've seen of those actors since then. So you can't really look at an actor with fresh eyes. Like, um, you know, Patrick Swayze. Uh, Patrick Swayze is going to be a guest on the show. Well, okay, he's not going to be a literal guest, but he's going to be mentioned a lot on the show. Yes. I, I can't, <laughs> I, I can't. Sadly, he is dead. <laughs> he's, he's actually right here. What? Um, <laughs> what? That's for our ghost episode. That's the ghost episode. That's the ghost episode. It'll be Hemingway, Swayze, uh, roundtable discussion of arts. Um, I meant the literal movie ghost, though. 
Oh, that too. That too. <laughs> that makes more sense. But like, I think of, I think of Swayze and Roadhouse. Like that's my, like, that's like, I can't unsee and Dalton. The, yeah. The rest of us think of Swayze and Dirty Dancing. So yeah. Yeah. That yeah. Works. yeah. <laughs> so was there any like particular actor that you wanted to really talk about? I mean, we talked well, a little I, bit about. We talked, well, now we've done Swayze, Machi, yeah. and Cruz, I think. Um, mm -hmm. uh, Leaf Garrett. You were enjoying Leaf Garrett. Um, we I sort was. of talked about him a little bit, but why don't you talk about him a little bit more? So like, Leaf, Ger Leaf Garrett was, I don't, I'm trying to remember, like he was a big like teen 70s singer. Oh in, my God, he was the best. So I'm older than you. So I remember yeah. Leaf Garrett. I had friends, you had to make a decision if you were going to get Leaf Garrett posters or if you would get one of the Gibbs posters to put in your oh. Right, yeah. so Leaf Garrett was hottie McHot pants in the seventies, mm -hmm. and then things went poorly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he was he was driving his Lamborghini. Uh, Porsche, I think it was. Porsche, Porsche. Uh, like a like okay. a triple elevated blood level, blood alcohol level crashes his car. His friend who's in the car. Uh, is a quadriplegic, uh, yeah. I think, after the after, after the accident. But that happened. This is what I didn't know. Like this had happened before, the yes, outsiders came out. But it happened at his 18th birthday party. And so, kind of brief aside. So, <clears throat> I, I only know of Leaf Garrett because when I was in college as an undergrad, like one of my sort of guilty pleasures was watching this show on VH1 called Behind the Music, and they had this episode about Leaf Garrett. And like Behind the Music basically was like like here's like the tragic downfall of this performer and mm. and there's a very awkward moment in the leaf garrett behind the music where leaf garrett meets his friend for the first time mm. um since and it's just it's just so exploitative um and uh it's pretty and i yeah I, I had burned it into my my memory bank oh it's it's november 3rd 1979 when the okay. accident happens and he's already he is such a fixture like not only is he a heartthrob he was in family with christy mcnichol right tatum mm -hmm. o'neill and justine bateman right so these are all names that'll be like oh yeah he yeah. um but yeah his accident um happened in uh 79 and when was the outsiders made 83 then? oh yeah so. so so like how the persona works is like you're seeing this like so like in what's shocking and you mentioned before like you see leaf garrett and you're like that's not leaf garrett like because I, I have this image in my head the long flowing hair and kind of like uh androgynous sort of sort of facial features absolutely um, in The Outsiders, his hair is short. He looks really, I'm kind of quasi unrecognizable. Oh yeah. And 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 that's partly intention intentional because like you don't want to have like Leaf Garrett like as Leaf Garrett come out. Like you want to at least have the character like the actor look like an actual character. But he's he's a bad soch too. Yeah. Uh, he's the one one of the ones that gets handsy with. Uh, Diane of Troy and <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so but so like for the audience it's like oh that, dude that's Leif Garrett right, right and right. like you bring in and maybe that's like is oftentimes directors will do that where if there's a an actor with some notoriety mm -hmm. and the they know the audience is going to be like oh I don't like that I don't like that guy or um I have a really strong opinion of 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 him um 
then I'm going to have a visceral reaction to him on screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like, but Garrett's weird. Like I don't recognize him and it's only in the credits that we're like, Oh, that's Leif, oh, it's Leif Garrett. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but you also like, this is more your wheelhouse because like you were saying that like, uh, like coming of age in the early, like the, the, in the eighties, right. Mm-hmm. Where you like, like you have these, Teen beat, tiger beat, like idols, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And all these young <clears throat> male actors are kind of positioned as like sexualized objects in this film, right? Right, but uh, safe, also very but, safe. But safe. Yeah. What do you mean by what do you mean by safe? Like, like they're not actually threatening. So, so one of the things that makes Leif Garrett, um, so he's already kind of on the outs, right? He's very dangerous. He had this. He's an alcoholic right? We mm-hmm. all know he's an alcoholic. We all know he's, right. we all know he's dating Nicolette Sheridan. who's like, you know, Hottie McHot, you know, and, and um, so he's like the, he, he actually is a bad boy, right? In real life. Right. And then in the movie, here he is, he's a soche, but actually in the way that the movie flips our allegiance between the soches and the greasers, right? Um, he's a soch, but being a soch means also actually being a bad boy, right? And so, uh, so you know, he he's the one who has to get killed. Um, he's the one who uh, uh, is an alcoholic, right? So he's an alcoholic mm-hmm. again. So if you know Leaf Garrett, you go, ooh, yeah, there you go. Uh, we we have talked for a long time. We're going to put a lot of things uh, up on the. Um, Instagram, but then mm-hmm. why don't you tell us what what is next? What are next steps, Paul? What do we do? Next steps. Well, really quickly, like we have our graduate readings. So if they're like we, we would say, Gone with the Wind, uh, Badlands, to be sure, uh, which is a fantastic movie. Um, it's really lovely. Yeah, and then you'll get an assignment from us at some point. <laughs> where twenty-page paper. Um, <laughs> I would say like next week. Next, next week, week. or next week. two weeks from now or the next time you see next time the next i say uh, yeah yeah well since yeah. it's the holiday season we're going to mm-hmm. go with the holiday film or holiday film series we will be talking about the die hard films <laughs> <laughs> exactly it, it, totally christmas films um yep. they yeah. are absolutely christmas films and mm-hmm. um so please watch um one or all die hard films um, at least Die Hard 1 and 2, because I think they still fit in the long 80s, good, right? Good point, good point. Yeah. Good point. So thank you right. so much for listening. If you've thank you. the whole thing, it was, you know, it was a lot of fun. This is totally a, a passion project for us, so um, really appreciate anybody who has taken the time to listen this long. Yeah, all right. Thank See you, you very Big, big, big thank yous. Big, big thank yous to our producer, Brian Wooldridge who is doing this out of the love of his heart. All right, we'll see you next time. All right, see ya. Bye.